0: Two and a Half Admins, episode 125. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, Alan, you've got a Clara article plug. This time it's the best of 2022. Yeah, so we, uh, for the
1: holidays we made uh, we didn't have much new stuff to post. We're saving that for the new year. But because of when we're recording this, we don't have anything new yet. But we do have our favorite articles in each category from 2022.
0: And it's definitely worth checking out. Well, link in the show notes as usual. I saw a couple of stories that were related recently. The first one was that the Irish ISP Air lost thousands of customer emails irretrievably. And the other is that EA say they can't recover 60% of players' corrupted Madden franchise save files. I don't know enough about Madden to know what that exactly means. It sounds like a kind of fantasy football thing.
1: Yeah, it's like an online career mode type thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but what's important here is we've got two clear examples of backups, if there were any, not being tested properly.
2: Yeah, in in both cases, you know, these are companies that should have been backing up that data and testing those backups and clearly weren't. Effort may or may not have been made. All we know for sure is nobody was doing that job of both backing up the data and making sure that backups were happening and were complete and were valid. There's only so much data that we're going to get out of either AIR or out of Electronic Arts about it. Electronic Arts has said that their issue was file system corruption, that once they detected the file system corruption, they limited logins, but then they allowed logins again. And people who did log in the first time they said it was safe, got their crap corrupted. And uh, Electronic Arts has said that they will be able to recover about 40% of that from backup, which it's all implication at that point, but it's not good implication.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: If they just said, you know, we don't back up that particular customer, you know, save data, like you might be mad, but you might say, well, okay, that's what, that's one thing that I wasn't paying for, you know, yada, yada. But when you say like, we can get a little less than half of it back from backups. Ah, so you were supposed to be backing that up you had management policies that said customer data will be backed up and you didn't do it. And management didn't make you prove you were doing it. And those two things together are what lead to exactly what happened.
1: Yeah, some of the details there make it look weird where it's like, if you didn't log in, then we can restore you from backup. But if you touched your files, then somehow our backup won't work now. I don't know if it's about... Getting a consistent backup, it's like if you were playing when we backed up. It turned out we don't actually have a consistent
0: copy of your save, or they just don't have the depth of backups. Maybe,
2: yeah. That's I was about to suggest the same thing. Joe hit the nail on the head. That I hadn't considered that possibility. That's one. If they're doing, they have
1: like a really short retention policy.
2: Yeah, if they're doing like daily backups and they rotate them out after a week, then yeah, if if your system was corrupting people's data for two weeks, you would have gotten rid of your last decent backup if your retention period was. 10 days, like that could real easy lead to about the numbers we're seeing of like, well, we can get about 40% of it back from the people who lost the stuff. And
1: the people who didn't play over Christmas.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> the The ones who
2: waited late enough to start logging in that we still have the oldest one of their
1: archives before crap got corrupted. Yeah. And I could see with, I don't know what volume of data that might've been. I guess probably not that much where a short retention maybe would make sense, but it's hard to say.
2: I bet that was a crap ton of data. I doubt as much per individual user, but I am willing to go on the record as saying, I think an awful lot of Americans play Madden football.
1: <laughs> right. I, I just wondered what the the churn rate is, but I guess because if it's something like fantasy football, there's going to be new data after every game and there's many games yep. a day that will really mess with. the The, the churn rate will be high. And so, yeah, they might have had a short retention mm-hmm. period and that might explain that weirdness. So anyway, uh, that, that was EA. Uh, EA's issue was, according to
2: them, due to a storage equipment or system problem that was corrupting data. Air, the Irish ISP, their issue was different and, if anything, a little bit even less thoroughly explained. They said that during a migration procedure, this isn't a direct quote, but it sums it up pretty well, something something scripts got run and stuff got deleted and we can't restore it. <laughs> <laughs> That's really what that press release boils down to.
0: Yeah, and for a bunch of people, email and some other data that is more than 45 days old is just gone forever.
2: Yes, and in some cases, the email in question that was lost forever goes back decades. There was an affected user in the article that I read saying that unspecified they that tells the normies how to computer, they told me that you know I should email important things to myself so I would always have them. This is not typically the best way to ensure safe archiving of data for any of our listeners who might not know better. But anyway, moving back, the the real the common thread and the reason we're we're putting these together, you know, into sort of a, a meta story, is because although EA's issue was a failure of a storage system and Air's issue appears to have been a script. Inadvisably run during a migration more of a direct human error kind of thing, the real issue in both cases was not actually backing up customer data and testing those backups and testing those backups, making sure they work the whole thing because what do you call a backup that you've never tested garbage it's it's nothing a prayer <laughs> yeah it's it's schrodinger's backup you'll never know if it's good or not until you actually test it.
1: I think the real kicker with the air one was. For about 20 years, they offered an email address free with your account, but eventually got to the point where, you know, running emails, a lot of work and it's not something people want an ISP email account much anymore. So in the summer of 2020, they switched to charging people $5.99 euros a month or $5.99 euros a month to keep their email. And once they did that, they were specifically selling email as a service. And I would say that the onus went up for them to be backing this up and actually running the service well. Now that it's not a free add-on with your account, it's something we're charging you specifically for. Later in the article, they mentioned the price going up, it seems, to nine ninety-nine euros Up
0: again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but don't worry. If you're affected by this and you lost 20 years worth of email, you get it free for life now.
2: Yeah, now you get the email that lost all your data free for as long as you want to keep using it. (laughs) Sweet. I would like to point out specifically that you know when we're talking about first 599 and then 999 euros a month for this small Irish ISP that only exists in Ireland to give you what sounds like very basic like here is email and that's all you get. For that amount of money, uh, you could be getting your email from Google or Microsoft on a business plan. Like that is a significant chunk of money per mailbox. So yes, they absolutely, the onus was on them to make sure that everything was as it needed to be with that, because you can make some real money charging people 10 bucks a month for just a basic email account.
1: Yeah, although it kind of seems like just speculating that their goal was to drive people off of that service by keep jacking up the price and be like, some people are going to be stuck here because I've had this email address for 20 years and I don't want to get rid of it. But you know, as the price gets up to $12 US a month or something, they'll be like, screw it, I'm going to switch to Google. Well, if the desire was to
2: drive users away from it, pardon my Irish, but problem fucking solved.
1: Yeah. Before the details were out and they're like 4%, I'm like, did they acquire somebody? And it was just some other, you know, a separate email server, but it, it seems like it was during a migration, partly because it looks like they were trying to consolidate and decommission some of their email infrastructure. But it really does seem like, how are you not doing something where you copy rather than move during the tra- the migration to prevent these kinds of problems
0: what are the odds that
1: it all boils down to a dash r yeah or you know some other script in an rsync or something it's like well this is why a file system with snapshots where you can undo that dash r or missing dash r or rsync dash, dash delete with the wrong flags or paths or something
2: my bet, and this is just speculation, but uh, my bet is it's the same problem that uh, led to the the big GitLab data loss when uh, their admin, who I will never stop loving the fact that his his handle is YP, YP uh, he had more than one terminal window open and he typed the right command in at the wrong server prompt. Mm, yep. Hmm.
1: I've typed reboot into the wrong one before. In that case, I was trying to reboot a VM on the machine
0: and I suddenly rebooted the host. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25a, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform and check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit, and support the show. That's linode.com 25A. We have to really try not to laugh about this. Ha, ha, ha. One of the developers of Bitcoin Core managed to somehow get compromised and lose all his Bitcoin worth over three billion million. Oof.
2: You know, before we get into the, the hard details of this, I want to point out up top, and I think we're going to hit it again at the bottom. The real message to take here is that even a core Bitcoin developer can't keep a significant amount of Bitcoin secure. That should really, really be a lesson anyone listening should take
1: to heart. The design of Bitcoin is meant to be that way, and it is
0: probably a fundamental
1: flaw of any kind of completely decentralized system like that.
0: Yeah, so to be clear, this is Luke Dasher, who is one of the developers of Bitcoin Core, which is the kind of basic original Bitcoin wallet software.
2: He also developed something called Bitcoin Knots. And uh, the PGP key that he used to secure that software to sign the app so you know that you're getting you know, the valid app, he says that that PGP key was compromised, which he believes is what stemmed to the loss of his 3.6 million, ap- I mean, Bitcoin. We're really just kind of taking his word for that. It's not that hard to picture possible scenarios that begin with a PGP key getting compromised and then that being used to gain access to somebody's wallet. There are even more of those scenarios when the specific key that you compromised and got access to is used to sign the apps that if you compromise them, you could get at that developer's Bitcoin and lots of people's Bitcoin with potentially. But yeah, Luke makes it clear he doesn't really know how he lost all his Bitcoin either. And he never makes it clear how he knows that his PGP key was compromised in the first place. But I'm going to choose to believe that he does, in fact, know that key was compromised. And he is guessing that the one leads to the other. I don't see any reason to assume that he doesn't know what he's talking about when he says, y'all, don't trust stuff signed with this particular key. Maybe don't do
1: that. It definitely says that all of his computers were compromised. And so even if he didn't have any evidence that the key was being used somewhere else or whatever, the fact that all his computers were compromised would mean it's time to do that anyway. Real question is does he have the revocation key handy and has he used it? <laughs> you know, there's also a valid question
2: does he know what those things are yeah. and how to use them? Uh, one of the disturbing things about reading through the initial Twitter thread where Luke announced his woes to the world at large. He asks some incredibly basic security questions. And to be clear, I, I really don't want to kick him any harder than I have to over this. I'm, I'm glad that he's asking questions. I'm glad that he's asking them at a simple enough level for what he needs to understand them. With that said, it's pretty disturbing to watch, you know, a, a core developer of Bitcoin Core asking things like, how do I download Tails and make sure it's secure? That feels a little romper room for somebody with the software development responsibilities that, again, are specifically tied to so much, I don't want to say money, but, you know, at least value that's there to be compromised. I, I really would rather feel like, okay, every developer, and that's part of the problem with the, the whole, you know, completely decentralized stuff, right? If Bitcoin were something that came down from a more concrete organization, you might say, well, it's okay if this senior developer doesn't understand security that well, because that senior developer who doesn't understand security very well has to operate by the policies that are set down and maintained and supervised by the controlling organization. But there's not a whole lot of regulation
1: going on in the cryptoverse. Or even just organization, like where does the funding to develop the bitcoin core app come from it doesn't sound like there's actually you know a whole security team who's out there making sure all the bitcoin developers are following best practices and have access to the tools they need and having procedures for when somebody's computer gets compromised it's more like your typical open source python project a bunch of people throwing stuff at github
2: yep which is exactly my point and you know the the reactions from the Bitcoin enthusiasts, who mostly is, is who's responding in that, that Twitter thread, uh, you know, crypto enthusiasts, Bitcoin folks. That'll be his follower base, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I just meant that it it hasn't mm. yet at least been swamped with trolls, which will probably happen. But even amongst his base, they've learned not to trust anything, which isn't the worst lesson to learn, but it's just, it's kind of disheartening seeing things like, and this is a direct quote, he's trying the Elon stunt of getting more people's attention affecting prices, says one user. And then another replies, that's what it sounds like. This looks like FUD for a price drop and not someone looking for help. So even amongst the hardcore crypto enthusiasts, there is, you know, an acknowledgement that, you know, hey, so this guy is a core dev and everything is dependent on him. But you know what? I bet this is a rug pull. It's a scam, whatever. And If that were coming from somebody who is like, you know, no, I want nothing to do with crypto because it's all a big grift, that would be one thing. But coming from the crypto base who still continues to want crypto and talks about how great it is, I'm just like... This is cognitive dissonance you could carve chunks out of with a grapefruit spoon.
1: Well, <laughs> it definitely smacks a bit of, you know, fool me thrice. Like I've been <laughs> rug pulled and ripped off by like crypto so many times. Of course, everything that happens is another attempt at doing that. Is there a danger that we're just gloating here? Is it a danger if you're right? That's difficult to answer. I feel like I
2: have been as even handed and charitable as I can. I don't wish having a ton of value stolen from them on just about anybody. I wish this guy hadn't lost his stuff. More importantly, I wish at this point, I'm certain millions of other people had not also lost amounts of money significant to them because of things like this. But no, I'm not just trying to gloat and kick the guy while he's down. I think it's important that people learn from these lessons. But no, I I have no interest in kicking this guy.
1: Well, in particular, I think it is that The features of cryptocurrency cut both ways. The fact that somebody can't do a chargeback against you and try to scam you also means that if your money gets taken, you can't do a chargeback and get it back. And the fact that there's no central authority who decides, oh, that transaction wasn't authorized, it shouldn't have been able to happen.
2: Yeah, and that was one of the things that bothered me in the comments coming from Luke himself in that thread. He said several times, You know, I pay my taxes, so why aren't these police and this FBI helping me because I pay my taxes? And it's not that this makes it okay by any means. I mean, there still is theft, and he should be getting help from law enforcement's agencies, but – Let's also mention the fact that, okay, great, you paid your taxes and then refused to use the currency that is enabled by those taxes that you pay some of and, you know, all of the security and regulation systems in place to protect users of that currency that, again, those taxes you're saying you paid went toward, you bypassed all that. You said, all that sucks. I don't want it. I want decentralized. I don't want the man having a say in my stuff. I want to be the guy that controls all the things. Well, and you were, and you found out that the one guy controlling the things is hackable. And you now have no recourse because you're the guy.
0: Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. The challenge with endpoint security has always been that it's difficult to scale. And when remote work took over, the challenge got exponentially harder. You need visibility into your fleet of devices in order to meet security goals and reduce service desk tickets. But how do you get that visibility when different parts of your company run on Mac, Windows, and Linux? You get Collide. Collide is an endpoint security solution that gives IT teams a single dashboard for all devices regardless of their operating system. Collide gives you real-time access to your fleet's data and can do things that traditional MDMs can't. And instead of installing intrusive agents or locking down devices, Collide takes a user-focused approach that communicates security recommendations to your employees directly on Slack. You can answer every question you have about your fleet without intruding on your workforce. Visit collide.com 25A to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot 25A. I saw a piece on the register by Tobias Mann called, It's Time to Retire Edge from Our IT Vocabulary. Yes, please. Yeah, he argues that it's just an overused term that doesn't really mean anything anymore because it's just used for too many different ideas.
1: Yes. I remember in the beginning, it was more like, it's a data center closer to you. So it's, you know, data centers in smaller cities and not just the nearest big city. And so it was like secondary market and tertiary market data centers. And then it was, it's in the cell tower. Mm-hmm. And then it became like, oh, Edge Appliances is like, it's a miniature version of the cloud that runs in the back of the store to run all the point of sales terminals. So it's kind of on-prem, but the cloud, but not. and. It's not everything, so it's just somewhat. And then it's, you know, 5G, IoT, robotics. It's like, yeah. The cell tower was the last
2: place, like the furthest out that the term the edge made sense. Because mm-hmm. once they started talking about, oh, well, you know, the, these edge appliances that like, you know, sit on a factory floor and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, that that's called a server. Yeah. That's not anything new. It's not anything weird or different. There's literally nothing about this that makes it an edge appliance instead of an embedded server. The same as the embedded servers that have been on factory floors for
1: literally my entire life and I'm 50 years old. Maybe the difference is that when it was an edge appliance, it was somebody else's machine, not yours. But that's really just a managed server more.
2: Yeah. And half the time, no, they they don't belong to somebody else. You see, especially like now they even talk about edge devices that sit in residential homes that were purchased by the homeowner and they still describe them as edge iot devices and just like no man it it is just a gadget you put on your network at your freaking house stop
1: yeah and the the veg goes on to point it's like in a data center their operating conditions like temperature humidity air quality are carefully controlled it's like Okay, if it's an edge device just because it can run in high temperatures, that's, that's just a ruggedized device or an industrial device. There's a bunch of other terms for that that have nothing to do with where it is as far as the network goes. And yeah, if it's in your house, it's not the edge. It's just plan. It's local. It's not on the edge if it's
2: in your office or on your factory floor either. You know, again, it is, it is just it's on-premises local equipment. And a lot of these things, you know, the the ruggedization angle, lots of these things are not in any way ruggedized or hardened against thermal extremes. It is literally just office equipment. But it's an Edge appliance because, you know, we all want to say cloud and Edge is how we say cloud when it's not cloud. But we
1: still want that hype from saying cloud, even though it isn't maybe it has an API like the cloud, even though it's local, but yeah. And then we get network edge and telco edge and near edge and far edge and industrial edge and edge data centers. It's like, so what is the near edge and far edge if it's not just a data center that's near or far away?
2: Yeah. Well, and the the whole argument about local you know, APIs, that doesn't wash either, because if you start talking about that, well, then I guess my, Personal computer is an edge appliance because, you know, when I browse to Facebook or Twitter or Reddit or Wikipedia, APIs are called using software
1: running on my machine to the stuff in the cloud. And Well, I meant more like if you use something like the Amazon API to manage the servers that are in the building, but that's just hybrid cloud, basically. But I saw a similar article to this one, kind of getting off on a tangent here, of the concept of multi cloud isn't really taking off because nobody wants to do multiple separate cloud APIs and so on. So now we're going to have the super cloud where you have some company intermediate and like have one API that then speaks to the other ones. It's like, what? It won't be a separate API,
2: really. We'll just have Chat GPT translate between them and <laughs> it will be fine. <laughs> that's the real metaverse, when everybody's clouds all talks to everybody else's clouds
1: as mediated through ChatGPT. And it'll get right enough, right? Mostly? Yeah. be fun. But yeah, there's some weird examples in here, like a sports arena might deploy a rack of servers to transcode large volumes of streaming video on-site to save bandwidth costs. It's like, sure, but that's some servers at a venue. Yeah, on- premise yes and then it's going to a data center that's not near edge (laughs) or a system bound for a manufacturing plant where it's going to be 85 degrees it's like that's just rugged or industrial not edge (laughs) in so many things in tech now we seem to have this disease (laughs) where we just kind of inflate what a word means until it means nothing yeah buzzword bingo okay
0: this episode is sponsored by tailscale go to tailscale.com TailScale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, TailScale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and Arm, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support to find out more about it. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. rights. When it comes to enterprise and free and open source management, Windows has Active Directory, Red Hat has IDM, Fedora has free IPA, Solaris had NIS and YP, then OpenDS. Ubuntu seems to be peddling the use of Active Directory, but has no internal system. What if I have just Linux or just BSD? What if it's a hybrid setup? What does a university use? LDAP seems like a cornerstone. I must be looking in the wrong place, but not finding a common and sensible approach. Maybe there isn't one. What can the rest of us use? I know that automation and orchestration will be some of the answer, but they are not the underpinning tools.
1: You know, for a university, it really depends. And often there's a mix of both. Most universities are going to have a Windows network and they probably also have a Unix network. Some of them that'll be the same and some of them will be separate. If they're the same, it likely is all tying back to after directory, just like Ubuntu is recommending there. The other ones, it'll be LDAP. And then either using Kerberos and and friends or something else to just tie that all together.
2: There's a little bit of this I want to push back on. Uh, The statement that Ubuntu seems to be peddling the use of Active Directory, but has no internal system. And then what if I have just Linux or just BSD? As in, like, do I need to do something different? Well, the normal way that you would join an Active Directory network can be done from any just Linux or just FreeBSD machine. You just install Samba 4 and configure it properly. Samba4 can act as an Active Directory client. It can also act as an Active Directory domain controller itself that can either be the only type of domain controller in an AD domain, or it can be joined to an Active Directory domain that started out with only Windows Active Directory controllers. All this works quite well. I have very rarely wanted to use Samba4 domains in production. I have somewhat less rarely wanted to join Ubuntu PCs to a Windows Active Directory domain. In both of those cases, though, I've used Samba before and had no real issues. It's easier than it used to be with older versions of Samba. Now, with that said, the statement that Ubuntu has no internal system is also not quite correct anymore. Canonical is in the process of building a new Active Directory client called ADSYS, and it also has an associated command line interface called ADSYS Control. ADSYS doesn't replace the parts of the puzzle that Samba 4 already achieves for you. So the SSSD and the pluggable Authentication modules, all that is still what handles the user authentication, setting the home directory all that good stuff, just like it would if you did a vanilla Samba install. What ADSYS adds is native group policy object support for machine and user policies. So we're talking now about managing the individual PC from the directory rather than the other way around. ADSYS is adding additional functionality. Also, the privilege management is better supported with ADSYS than it was with just regular Samba 4. AD Sys can grant or revoke super user privileges for the default local user and Active Directory users and groups, which was a bit of a pain point with pure Samba Active Directory joins. And finally custom script execution, which allows you to schedule shell scripts to be executed at startup, shutdown, login, and logout. Via Active Directory, of course, you could already do that without AD. But one of the big things here is that the command line tool can generate ADMX and ADML policy files that you can install in the directory itself. Once you've done that and they've been imported, you can find and modify those policy files using the Windows native GPO management editor in Windows Server itself. So we are talking about adding new features to AD integration that really didn't exist before. But the part that you've always been able to get, just say, I can join a domain and I can be able to log in as any of the user accounts in that domain on this machine with a certain few of them also having a particular local group membership. Yeah, you can can do all that just with Samba 4
1: on Linux or FreeBSD just fine. Most of my experience with this is joining FreeBSD machines to a Windows domain and setting up the file sharing from the FreeBSD machine, but with the Windows permission stuff. So that, you know, somebody on browse the files on Windows could right click and set permissions on a folder and say that only these users and groups from the Active Directory are allowed to read these files and so on. And so all of that works together as well, because Samba can apply the NFS style ACLs to ZFS on FreeBSD. So if we're going to get down to brass tacks of recommendations of how our
2: listeners should do this stuff. My answer remains the same as the last time somebody asked about Active Directory integration. I would recommend using Samba before and joining the domain. The question then becomes, do you want to just use Samba before, in which case that will work for any of the Unix-like machines on your network, or do you want to experiment with Canonical's new shiny thing? My caution there would be that Canonical lately has been... They're not up to Google levels of abandoning projects unexpectedly, but they are starting to kind of gain a rep for it. And I would be a little bit nervous about using ADSYS control before it's got a little bit more mileage under the hood just because it's hard to say how long it will be supported. I'd be a lot more comfortable with it if, like some before itself, it was available everywhere on everything.
1: Yeah, if the setup was very small, then the NIS slash YP stuff makes sense there. But outside of that, Active Directory is just They're very rare that you're not in a hybrid environment where there's Linux and Windows and probably some BSD. And Samba is the thing that works across all of those.
2: And honestly, it's easier. Under the hood, you might say, you know, something like an old school NIS and Yellow Pages setup is simpler, but actually implementing it today in 2023 I will bet you money you can't find something simpler to set up than a Samba 4 Active Directory domain controller and then Samba 4 clients on your individual machines. It's going to be the easiest way to get
1: yourself out of the hole that you want to get out of. Yeah, you know, I was mostly comparing it to setting up your own LDAP, which is all kinds of terrible. And so, yes, I'd second Jim's recommendation that the Active Directory is probably the way to go because it will cover Windows, Mac, Linux, BSD, and it'll just work. And everything else doesn't work that broadly across everything.
0: Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at two dot adminscom is the email if you want to send in your questions or your feedback. You can find me on Mastodon or at jarrest.com.
2: You can find me on Twitter at jrssnet.
0: And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.